Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at times separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in, the fl- in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in of ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also you also are being built together into a dwelling place for the God by the Spirit. This is the reading of God's word. Thank you. Thanks, Kayla, for uh, reading the word of God today. Um, good to see everybody here. Uh, I know that the summer is winding down, and this is like some of us, it's, it's a last-minute opportunity to squeeze out a vacation, maybe a little trip before the fall begins. Um, so hopefully uh, you and I, we can enjoy uh, the rest of summer together. Um, just to kind of reiterate what Lisa was saying, uh, the retreat I thought was really good. Um, if you weren't able to make it this year, hopefully next year, next time we have one, you could really make it. For those of us who were uh, able to attend, hopefully you were blessed. Um, prayer is that New relationships may have been forged, um, and also even old relationships may have been deepened. Um, it would be an opportunity to, to continue and um, keep each other in prayer as we serve and worship together as a church. And I think as a church, uh, we will be looking at hopefully more opportunities to um, grow together this way. Um, <clears throat> so... It seems like a long time ago, but it's only two Sundays ago, and uh, two Sundays ago, we looked at this passage here in Ephesians chapter 2, and we entitled uh, the first sermon, Haters. And uh, today, the, the, I, it was more of an introduction, but uh, we're looking at this passage again two weeks later, and uh, it's entitled Still Haters. Now, um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to just look at this passage quickly, kind of review some of the things that we did mention last time we met, because I'm sure many of us have already forgotten, but then also kind of look at more practical things to think about as we interact together as a church. Okay? So, <clears throat> this is what uh, I think Paul wants to show us. In 2018, um, there was a sociological study that showed that American teenagers are more likely than any other generation in American history to leave the church and to reject Christian faith, right? 
our young people, more than any generation in American history, are more likely, if they were going to church, to leave the church and to reject Christian faith. And part of the research went on to show that at least part of the reason they did this was because in our culture today, there was an inherent radical individualism. We have a generation growing up now more convinced than any other that has come before of the total autonomy of the self. It's me, myself, and I. At the end of the day, they were saying, we don't need anyone but ourselves. Thank you very much. And when it comes to the church then, today, they view the church essentially considered to be a problem, a barrier to faith, an obstacle even to healthy spirituality rather than essential to it. But what's interesting about this study was that the same study showed that despite the loss of the church from the values of a whole generation, one of the buzzwords of our community or our age is the word community. Everyone, even in that generation, is looking for community, hoping to find a community. Uh, that no matter how individualized we think we are uh, or we get, it seems that for people, we never really shake the need for roots. We never really shake the need for connection. We never really share, shake the need for uh, belonging. Two weeks ago, we said this. The church, <clears throat> at least practically speaking in, the, in this passage I see, is supposed to be a place where its members get the strength and, and the resources to get along with people who are different from you. In fact, the opposite of you. Church is supposed to be a place where despite some of our differences, whether personality, sense of humor, vocation, financial, educational backgrounds, whatever the difference is, it's supposed to be a place where we live in a kind of unity with all kinds of people that are normally outside this church we would never have anything to do with. That's what a church is ought to be, essentially. That's what I think that Paul's saying we've been made to be. We just don't execute on it. So <clears throat> I want to un unpack this a little bit more and see how uh, some of these things work. Because some of them are not so obvious. Three points here today, as I usually try and do, they're all the shuns. Okay, Three shuns. There's separation, right? Or isolation, same thing. Uh, second point, there's reconciliation, right? And third point, there's identification. Separation, isolation, same thing. Reconciliation and identification or identity, all right? So let's look at this and remind ourselves of this thing. Here's the background of this passage again, if you missed it. Um, this is a case study that Paul is giving us here in Ephesians. And there's in this one church made up of Jewish Christians and non-Jewish Christians, Gentiles, there's conflict. We see in this church that you had Christians who were Jewish for backgrounds, and you had Christians who weren't from Jewish backgrounds. In other words, in this one church, you had brothers and sisters from different backgrounds, different races, different ethnicities, different upbringing, different religious experiences. And yet what Paul is implying here, what we see here in verses 14 and 16, that there was hostility in this church. 
there was a kind of enmity or hate between Christians who were Jewish and Christians who weren't. They were, as we said two weeks ago, they were in, in a way hating on each other. But it wasn't necessarily because of any particular biblical sin. It was because they were different. Jewish Christians thought they were close to God because they had the law of Moses. So they were very religious. They grew up in a certain way. They looked at those Gentiles who didn't have the law, didn't have the Bible, didn't grow up with what they grew up with, and they said, oh my goodness, you guys are so ignorant. I can't believe you're a Christian, right? Uh, you don't even know what God wants. You don't have the laws of God, right? You're just not fit to be part of the family of God. And the Gentiles Christians, right, the non-Jewish Christians looked at those Jewish Christians and they also believed that they were close to God because of what Jesus did for them, but they didn't grow up with the word. They didn't grow up with the law, and a lot of it, they just felt it didn't apply. It, wasn't, it just wasn't their experience. They weren't so keen on the laws of God or the laws of Moses. But they looked at those Jewish Christians in their church, and they said, oh my goodness, those Jewish Christians, they are so judgmental. They are, they're so snobs. Uh, they're so legalistic, and they just need to loosen up. And so Paul gives us this word twice in our passage, verses 14 and 16, if you remember this, this word hostility, that there's hostility between Christians who happen to be just different in background. Now, what's hostility again? It's hatred. It's enmity. But here was what we have to understand. Hate isn't just this burning anger. It's also a cold shoulder. Hate isn't just teeth grinding and mean words. It's also indifference. Hostility is not just someone who always wants to fight. It's also someone who just doesn't care. Just doesn't care. Think about this. Those of us who have children... If you discipline your children out of anger and frustration, that's a kind of hate. That's a hostility, right? But on the other hand, as Proverbs 13 tells us, if you do nothing with your children, no discipline at all, did you know that's also hate? Indifference is also hate. And the Lord, we're told over and over in the Word of God, the Lord disciplines those he loves. So that's what's going on here in this church. But the point here is this. Whatever kind of hostility, hate, enmity, indifference, whatever that is, here's the point. It will always result in separation and or isolation. The easiest expression of hostility is to exclude. So in this church, the, that hostility grew, but it wasn't like they were beating each other up every week. It wasn't like they were having, you know, just all-out arguments and verbal abuses every week. No, it, it was much more subtle. Back then, they worshipped in temples, uh, Jewish Christians still, and um, there's a sign over the entryway of the outer courts. There's outer courts, inner courts, and then the Holy of Holies. And everyone can come into the outer courts, usually. But in the, you know, for a while, they had a sign that stood over the door of the end outer courts of the precincts of the temple. 
where even Gentiles and non-Gentiles could freely come. And it said this, uh, if you're a foreigner, you cannot go further. In 1871, a sign like this was discovered with the inscription that read like this, quote, no foreigner may enter within the barrier of the inner courts around the temple. No foreigner. Anyone who's caught doing so will have himself to blame for his own death. That's what they had. The Jewish Christians were saying, if you do not conform to us, you're not welcome. You're excluded. The ceremonial laws that they had, which weren't even in the Bible, kept non-Jewish people from joining with the rest of the church. They excluded each other. They may have worshipped together for a moment, but after service, they couldn't eat together. They wouldn't eat together. They wouldn't want to hang out together. And it was not anything because of one particular real sin, but ultimately, it was because of the differences. Hostility, hate, among many things, will always result in separation or division. And if you do it enough, if you're a kind of hater, no matter how innocent it might be, if you hate enough, you will find yourself isolating yourself from certain people and eventually from a lot of people. How many times have we heard from certain people, I can't stand people. I can't stand people. Right? The people. I can't stand these people. I can't stand that person. They're, they're dead to me. How many times have we said that to ourselves? How many times have you heard this? And even in the church, even in the church, it's what I call love and leave. You first come to a church, oh, I love the church. Oh, I love the people. They're so great. They're so nice. And you get to know them a little more, and you see some of the differences, and you see some more than differences that are kind of hard to deal with, and then you leave. It's not because of any real sin issue. It wasn't because the pastor was doing some egregious sin. It wasn't because there was some heretical teaching that was going on. It wasn't because there was like abuse of money in the, in the church. It was because they, were, they just couldn't get along. They're different. What's the number one reason for a divorce that's reported in America today? Irreconcilable difference. What's the number one reason people leave a church? irreconcilable difference. Difference. As long as there's hostility, there will always be separation and isolation. That's why it's important to address. Third point, reconciliation. Okay? Did you know that God, he also knows a little bit about hostility. He also knows, he knows personally a little bit about hate, a little bit about enmity. Now the thing is, God is not a hater but did you know he hates sin? He hates sin. He knows about separation. Look, you read a few verses before our passage in Ephesians chapter 2. Guess what? Did you know this? You were dead to him. You're dead to me because of your sin. It says there, you were dead in your trespasses. You are sons of disobedience. You are children of what? Anger and wrath. God knows exactly what that feels like for real issues. But the difference between God and us is this. When you read verse 4, two words come out. But God, 
being rich in mercy because of his great love for us. He loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses. He made us alive together with Jesus. By grace, you have been saved. And so what we see here in God, that God knows about enmity. He knows about uh, the divisions. He himself was once divided from us. But he says, even in real sin issues, not just differences, real sin issues, real hostility and enmity, not separation, isolation, what? Reconciliation. Reconciliation. That's why Paul says in our verse here, verse 16, God put to death the hostility. When he put to death his son Jesus Christ, he killed the animosity. He killed the hate, the indifference, the cold. In principle, right? In principle, he killed it. The only thing that died on a cross is Jesus Christ. But the verse says he killed hostility. Hate, enmity at its worst, enmity at its worst wants to kill. But rather than God killing us, legitimately, he killed his son. So in principle, he killed the hostility on the cross when he killed his son. How? By removing the barrier that separated us from him. And in this case, in this church, it was that law. The requirements that they had, fulfilling its demands, that's what Jesus did. And he took its punishments on our behalf. Now, what happens when you remove hostility? All that isolation, all that separation disappears. You remember when Jesus dies on the cross? What does he say? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was separated. He himself experienced separation. He was isolated from the Father, cut off. Jesus was excluded from the Father. Why? So that sinners like us might call his God, Abba, Father. His God becomes our God. His Father becomes our Father. And you know what that means? If he's our Father, we are brothers and sisters. That is a completely new identity, which brings to me my third point, identification, identity. What does God give us to overcome some of our hate, some of our hostility, you know, even, even innocent hate, whatever that might be, or even real, just mean, burning kind of hostility. What does God give us? It's not just more love, which we do need. It's not just more patience, which, which I certainly need. And it's not certainly more grace, which we all need. All of those things are necessary. But what we see in this passage, it's deeper. In order to overcome hostility, he reminds us, he gives us a completely new identity. When you look at verses 14 and 15, this is what he did. It says in verse 15, he made one man, one new man out of two. How? By joining the two to his son, Jesus Christ. You see this? Look, these two people in this church, Jewish Christians and non-Jewish Christians, he says they're separated. There's hostility between them. But what God does by sending Jesus Christ is that through him, because both are now united to him, they are brought together with him. They were separated by hostility, separated from God. Now they have been reconciled to him. 
And so he says, therefore, we're one with another because we're one with this God. We're members of the same body because we're united to the same head. Now, what does that mean? It, it doesn't mean that when you, when you became one with, with this church that you were more Jewish. It, it, it doesn't mean that when you became more one with this church, you were more Gentile. He says they're completely new from both, completely different, a new man from two differences. And who is that? Someone who is no longer alienated or stranger. Our passage says, no longer separated, no longer isolated by giving us a radical new identity. Now here, let me flesh this out because I think this is important to think about. What do we mean when we say identity? Simply put, identity is, is who you are, who you think you really are, the core of who you are. Okay, but we have a lot of those factors that we identify with. Uh, for example, let me, let me just try and be personal. Um, so I preach, and let's say hypothetically, I preach in a small church somewhere in New Jersey, okay, for, for years and years, and Let's say hypothetically, everyone in this church says, oh, we love your preaching. You're a great preacher. You're a great preacher. So for 10 years, some 15 years, you hear, let's say hypothetically, you hear this all the time. Every time, oh, you're a great preacher. You're a great preacher. And so you start thinking it. I'm a great preacher. Let's say that hypothetically, I get invited to visit a, a big church out in California. Right? And I meet other pastors, and I get to listen to them preach. And I realized this, compared to them, I'm okay. <laughs> I'm just okay. But here's what I feel. I am totally wrecked. Because all these years, I thought, you know, I've been told, I'm such a great preacher, I'm such a great preacher. But I'm being told by this by a small group of people who probably you know, don't have a great standard to begin with, and then all the way go to all these great preachers around me, and I realize I'm not that great. I'm not that great. And, and, and rather than just being able to say, wow, his sermon was such a blessing to me. Do you know what I'm doing in my heart? Eh, it's all right. Uh, you know, it's okay. It's not that good, you know. You know, I, I'm hating on them. Uh, you know, if I did it differently, I would have said something else. I'm hating on them. Why? Because if I can hate on them, I can still feel good about myself. Because if I don't feel good about myself in my preaching, I'm done. Why? Because preaching is not just something I do. Preaching is who I am. It's an identity issue. Right? And because it's an identity issue, it's who I am, when that's threatened, what happens? I get jealous, I get envious, I can be critical, I can put others down, and this way I might feel better about myself. It's hostility. Right? Look, what, what was the problem in this church here in, in Ephesians 2? What, what was the source of hostility? And we're told it, it's verse 15, the law. The Mosaic law was a source of hostility. It separated these two people. But if you ask, is the law bad? No, Paul says in other, elsewhere, the law is good. It's spiritual. It's good. Then how can something that's really good, like the law, be the cause of hostility, of hate? Because for the Jews, 
it wasn't just something that, that God had given them to obey, to get closer to God and to bless other people. For them, the law was not just something they obeyed. It was something that they were. It was ingrained into their culture. It was ingrained into their ethnicity. And they were proud uh, of being Jewish because they had the law. And in order to be with us, you have to be like us. And if you weren't, you were excluded. Things that separate us, things that divide us, are not always sin issues. There are times, oftentimes, identity issues. Things that separate us aren't always bad things. Sometimes what we consider good things about us. Let me, let me give you a few examples and ask yourself if this is you. Um, I went to Africa some years and years ago for a two-week trip. And uh, we visited this church um, it was the Maasai tribe. The pastor there wanted me to preach. I was so excited to preach because it's the first time I'm going to preach to non-Asians, non-Americans, uh, and to share the gospel with, with Maasai people, okay? And, uh, you know, it was a very humble church. You know, the pastor told me, when you go back to America, tell your people, we don't have a building. We worship under a tree. And I was like, whoa, you know, that's humbling, you know. And so I'm ready, and I'm prepared to preach. It's Sunday morning, and the pastor there told me it's going to start at uh, 11 o'clock. 11 o'clock, okay? So I'm, I'm prepared. I'm, I'm prepared. I'm going to give the best sermon of my life. I'm going to, like, do everything I can to preach to this church here in, in Africa, to the Maasai. You know what happened? I waited until 11 o'clock. I'm ready to go. Ten minutes goes by. It's 11.10. Then it's 11.15. Then it's 11.30. Nobody's there except me, uh, my team, and, and that pastor. And I'm getting nervous. Like, what's going on? Why isn't it showing up? Why isn't anyone showing up? And all he could say was, don't worry, they're coming. They're coming. It's 12.15. It's an hour and 15 minutes past the time that we are supposed to start. And here, I'm going to be very honest, I was getting a little frustrated this will never fly in America, right? If you are late to service, you're not going to, you know, no one's going to be, you know, this is, this is I, I felt a little bit, look, I prepared so much for this sermon. I'm waiting here an hour and 15 for people to come, and they trickle in. They're just walking in, you know, like with their staff, and just kind of walking like, hey, how he's going? And, and I'm like, dude, you're late. It's 11 o'clock that we're supposed to start, and it's 12.15. I was, I was frustrated. I was like, what's wrong with these people? And the pastor told me uh, that those group of people, they had to walk about 30 miles on foot every day, every Sunday to get to church. So we have to wait. I was like, oh. But they're so late. And he's like, yeah, but we start when we get here. Well, what, what time do you end? Well, we end when they leave. What? Are you serious? Let me ask you a question. Um, for some of you, um, how late does a person have to be before you start getting upset and offended? Five minutes late? Ten minutes late? You know, you know, some of you get really hurt, really upset when people are late. Fifteen minutes late? Twenty minutes late? An hour? To, how long do you have to wait before you have to apologize? We're being late. 20 minutes late? And in our culture, 
being on time, we're very time-oriented. If it starts at 12, we need to start at 12. If it ends at 2, then we need to end at 2. We're very time-oriented. That's not a bad thing. Being punctual, being on time, I think is a very good thing. It's organization. It gets things done. It's great. But there are other cultures who are not time-oriented. They're a little more relational-oriented. You ask them, when do we start? Well, it happens when it happens, right? When everybody gets here. Well, when's it over? Well, when everybody's gone, then it's over. And the thing is, we don't look at that and we say, well, that's just different. What do we say? Here's the problem. We moralize the difference. We assign a moral value, and we don't say, oh, well, that culture is just different. They're just more relational and they just wait. No, we say that's worse. That's irresponsible. That's, that's not punctual. It's insensitive to everybody else. We don't have all day. Who do they think they are? Why is that? Why do we get upset? Because being on time for you is an identity issue. Right? And instead of saying, well, you know, they're just different, what we're saying is, no, we're better. This way is better. It's an identity factor. Look, I'll give you another example. Parenting. Such a sensitive issue if you have kids. Even if you have don't kids, you look at, other, you look at the kids in church and you kind of, what kind of parenting skills do those parents have? And on the one hand, you have little parents who are a little more strict. They're so strict. They're, they're so like helicopter parents. You know, they don't like to do this. They don't let them do that. They don't let them buy this, you know. And that, that's not a bad thing. Right? But on the other hand, you look at other parents, and it seems like, no, 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 that's, that's, we can't do it that way. You're going to stifle the kid too much if you do too much. They're, they're going to explode when they go to college, and so we're going to let them play now so that they get more discipline later. And so completely different. I see both sides. I see both points. But why is it such a point of contention? Because parenting is not just something we do. Being a mom and dad is who we are. It's an identity issue. Um, let me give you another example of how this works, uh, especially in our culture today. You know, there are, are politically speaking, there are liberals and, and there are conservatives. Now, what we see in media and on TV, uh, social media especially, they tend to put on extreme views of both sides. And so it always seems like there's this huge gap. But if you know some liberals or if you know some conservatives, you know that you've met both of them who are both civil and respectful. And then you've met some who really hate the other side. And if they are something you hate or if there's someone you hate or they hate you, it's only because you think, well, because they just happen to be more liberal or more conservative. Now, for me personally, I'm not into politics. I don't really like politics. I don't really care. For me, being liberal or conservative, it's just politics. But for some, it's an identity factor. It's who you are, whether liberal or conservative. It gives you a sense of worth. And so when you meet someone the opposite of you, you can't just disagree and say, okay, let's agree to disagree. What do you do? You have to despise them. You've got to despise them. Why? Not because politics is just politics. It's because it's a big identity factor for you. Here's how you know when something is a big factor for you, a big identity issue for you. I'll give you an example. How do you know? Let's say you're a hardworking person, and that's who you've been. You believe in hard work, putting the hours, get up early. That's part of who you've been. That's how you grew up. 
You know when an identity factor is real, when you just can't stand lazy people. You're irritated. It bugs you. Some people are hardworking, and they see people who are not so hardworking, they say, oh, well, you know, that's just who they are. But some people who are hardworking, they see what they think is a lazy person, and they're so upset, they're irritated. They despise them. Why? Because it's an identity issue for them. Here's my point. Anything can be a dividing wall of hostility, not just the law. If we make those things who we are, identity issues, if we make them into moral issues for us, into sin issues. Here's my problem with that, okay? Look, if I came to you and I said to you very clearly, you know what, I think the Bible is clear. Sex outside of marriage is not permitted. Did you know that? Did you know that? And oftentimes the response is, yeah, I know, but you know, but you know. But then I say, hey, did you know that person made you wait 20 minutes? He's late 20 minutes. You're like, oh, my God, I cannot believe. I can't believe he made me 20 minutes. It's so wrong. So what does God do in our passage? How does Paul say God removes this kind of hostility? How? by giving us a new identity, recreating us into a new identity. Look, here's, here's what I mean. If you know that both you and the other person have both been reconciled before a holy God, guess what happens? You're humbled. You're humbled. That's what he says in verse 15. Two people made into one because of our union with him. Both Jews and Gentiles need reconciliation. Both Democrats and Republicans need reconciliation. Both people who are late and and always on time need reconciliation from God. Both religious and non-religious people need uh, this reconciliation because both are separated from him. Both become isolated from him, and not just from him, but from one another. But when you understand that we all need this one God, there's a kind of humility that comes into your life that says you are no better than anyone else. You are too humble to ever look down on anyone else, even if they are different from you. And at the same time, not only humility, but there's an affirmation that comes. Why? Because, look, if we both participate in Jesus Christ, we share that same God, and we are completely new. One out of these two differences, what does he say we are? We're no longer separated and isolated from him. We're no longer, verse 19, strangers and aliens. What are we? We're family. We're citizens of his kingdom. We're a place where God is not far but close. In fact, he dwells in us. And that means not only are we too humbled by God to be accepted by him, to hate on anybody else, you're too affirmed by him to care what anybody else says about you. All because of what God says you are now. A new identity. Loved by him, reconciled by him, ought to be the most important opinion in your life. Now don't get me wrong. All those other identity factors are still there in your life. But now they're demoted. Politics now is just politics. Money is just money. Parenting is just parenting. And preaching, 
just preaching. But a Christian is somebody who says, as important as those things are to me, they are ultimately not me. They don't define me. They don't make or break me. But only what the Savior says to me and has done for me. And it's all there here. It's all here. At least in principle, that's the truth. It's all there. You just need to execute on it. One of the results of the retreat I, I see is that, you know, a lot of people are sharing, well, not a lot, but a good number of people are sharing like they never shared before. And they're sharing with people that they've never shared before with, which is great. For me, I'm already aware of a lot of those things that have been already shared. But it's just never been shared with each other. Even though some of those people in your groups or in the retreat may be really different from you in other ways. It's a great thing. But will it last? Or will it fizzle out? Hey, let's meet. Let's meet. Let's our small group meet after the retreat. Yeah, 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 yeah. We'll do it for like, you know, a month, two months. Christmas season's here. Hey, family, dinners, uh, vacation. The struggle is real. It will always be there in any church. If not now, then later. And if you struggle, and if I struggle with loving people, or even certain people, it's not just the people I have problem with. It's God. It's believing in the one who says that he has reconciled us both to him in one body on the cross, and he killed the hostility. And so what we need to remember, as much as we want to interact with one another, it can't just be horizontal. It also needs to be vertical. In fact, that's where we need to start. You can't just talk about you. And you can't just listen to talk them talk about them. We need to talk about him and remind each other of him. Otherwise, we will burn out. It will be hard to keep up. And we may be disappointed later on. So let's continue to think about this um, as we look at our relationships going forward. Let's take a moment to pray. Father, we thank you so much for your grace. We thank you so much for your love. Uh, we thank you for just opportunities, um, not only to be challenged, but to grow, um, to not only receive, but also to give. And uh, for some of us here in the church, we've been here for a very long time, and yet maybe uh, some of that has not taken place in the way that you would like or that we would like to see, but... Others, maybe we're rather relatively newer to this place, and, and we're looking for uh, a community, a, a church that uh, is not only theologically correct, but relationally um, deep and encouraging. And 
The reality is, Lord, you bring us together, and sometimes no matter what we look like on the outside, we could be very, very different on the inside, and yet you brought us together to be the church. And we pray, Lord, um, whether from the retreat or whether just in our own lives, uh, whether, whether people around us, we pray that we would recognize uh, a constant need for a kind of fellowship that not only has fun together, but, Lord, uh, is able to really encourage and speak to one another uh, with words that you've given us in your Bible. To remind us, Lord, uh, in, in our struggles and in our loneliness, in our weaknesses, in our losses, in, in our lives, uh, that as much as we are feeling that, Lord, we are not alone because ultimately you are there, God, in our life and you have given us resources around us. We just need to tap into them. We just need to execute on them. And so, Lord, we pray uh, that we continue to grow and to be the kind of church that you have told us to be. Uh, the kind of church you show us here in Ephesians 2. The kind of church that really oozes, Lord, your kind of love, not the way we do, but the way you have done us. And so give us patience, give us grace, give us diligence and perseverance, and help us, Lord, to be faithful in all circumstances. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.